Welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 144, Rising Tide. 1453 was a year when everything changed. For England, it marked the end, unofficially, of the 100 Years' War, as they lost all but Calais to the French, the smallest footprint the English had on the continent since the Norman Conquest. In the midst of these losses on October 13, 1453, Edward, the heir apparent, was born to Henry VI and Margaret of Anjou. When Margaret found out she was with child, the kingdom was celebratory in that spring. Even Duke Richard's wife had sent the queen a letter of congratulations. The hope, of course, was that the birth of a direct heir might satiate a lot of the concerns surrounding the current monarch and allow hope to return to England. The relationship between Duke Richard's wife and the queen were actually much better generally than the king and Duke Richard himself, and in fact, Duke Richard and the queen. Uh, So in some ways, while this is an acknowledgement of crossing of boundaries, it's not as big as maybe it could be perceived to be. By summer, this hope, however, was in ashes. On July 17th, the English army near Castilian had been annihilated by the French. The English had held the Bordeaux region for a number of years, and many expected the arrival of John Talbot, the Earl of Shrewsbury, on October of 1452, would push the French back, especially in the areas where they had made advances. Shrewsbury, during the summer of 1453, had been trying to stop these French invasions around the English stronghold of Castilian. Shrewsbury had found what he thought to be an abandoned camp, driving his cavalry ahead to raid the camp for supplies and to deprive the French of valuable arms and ammo. However, the French were still at the camp and ready for this attack. The French cannons inflicted heavy losses on the dismounted cavalry, and though some of Shrewsbury's infantry came up during that hour of battle, the English troops were routed by the French. Shrewsbury was killed, and the garrison at Castilian would surrender the next day, and the capitulation of Bordeaux in October restored Gascony to France and ended the war. It was a military fiasco which tainted Henry VI and leaving him vulnerable, just as his domestic life appeared to finally be picking up. Upon hearing of the defeat, Henry was caught in the first of his traumas. As historian Dan Jones put it, Henry fell into a form of stupor, the crippling, vacant, catatonic of a waking coma, whose grotesque spell he would remain in for fifteen months. At the time of Edward's birth, it would be too late to save the queen and her court, as Henry had already succumbed to the first of his episodes. England had lost its hold on France, and lost its hold of stability, and lost its king in one terrible summer. And the plotting of various nobles in Ireland, Wales, and England would be key to what was to come. With the king now unable to respond, the court could not even get him to recognize his son as heir to the crown, 
an issue that had massive consequences for the queen and her favorites. If the king could not respond to any outside stimulus, it would mean he could not approve any sort of decision-making, which would steal away whatever legitimacy Somerset and the queen had hoped they could hold on to in the face of these stiff challenges. The Duke of Somerset and the court, which had led during this turmoil, was now in trouble. They needed to lead as they had done for so many years, but now they were forced to do so without a link to the king. This could be seen as near illegal, without the will of the king nor the approval of parliament. Worse still for the English crown, this final capture of Bordeaux was accomplished on October 19th, just a few days after the birth of the crown prince. This was a combined with the news that the king was incapacitated, which was finally a reaching important ears at this point. Up until then, this had just been a rumor. There had been no confirmation, but it was too late and too hard to hope that he would suddenly come out of it, and they had to acknowledge that this situation was the case. All of this would then lead, in the latter part of October, to a great council, or also called the Magnum Consolium. This great council was a group of the highest level of men across England. This included both nobility and clergy, who were then called to deal with the pressing issues facing the court. Initially, it appeared the court wanted to exclude the Duke of York from this meeting of these men, but really they had little choice. He was already too powerful to ignore and had too many connections within the nobility which would call for his inclusion. So on October 24th, a letter was signed with the king's name, but obviously not by his hand. The Grand Council was to sit, and the disputes between York and Somerset were to be set aside according to this letter. The invite was sent to York, and York accepted. The Duke of York arrived in Westminster on November 12th, 1453. But if the hope that he was a going to be amenable to a reconciliation, there was no sign that York had any interest in making peace. He was a man who knew he had the power and prestige to push his agenda and really didn't care what the crown or its court thought about that. Mulberry, the third Duke of Norfolk, had had a long-standing grudge against Somerset. It would be exacerbated by conflicts between Norfolk and his feuding partners in the Percys, supporters and loyalists to Somerset. These men had bickered about land and inheritance and all of these kind of ideas had been a problem, and it would be a continued problem for both Somerset and the allies of the Queen that a lot of the men who were against her and him were men who had been done in their perception wrongly by the king or his court. Norfolk himself had a reputation for being a violent hothead. He had been imprisoned twice for unruly behavior, including in the Tower of London, and was infamous in East Anglia for his feud with the De La Poles, which led to a massive increase in crime in the area. York now relied on his volatile compatriot to push his agenda forward. Norfolk openly blamed Somerset for the loss in France, His, and then the accusations centering around Somerset meant that he was to be arrested on the spot, 
and there was enough sympathetic ears on the council that agreed that they seized him, and one of the great allies of Henry and Margaret was now in the Tower of London at the pleasure of York and his friends. At a meeting a few days later, York would ascend to lead the court of Henry the Sixth. He was now the undisputed leader in England, and within a month had gone from a struggling noble dealing with the bottom of the deck to ruling England in all but name. The Queen had hoped to fight York. She created her own rival faction with those loyal to her that, of course, remained. However, her list of demands that she created, which would demand that she be put in place to appoint various people and effectively be the leader in England, were flatly rejected by the Council and Parliament in 1454. York, in February of that year, was named as the King's Lieutenant, a position which allowed Richard to call a Parliament and to represent the King and to preside over it. This was a huge step in putting Richard as the protector of the crown. Somerset and Margaret, even while in prison, were not idle to the, in this period. Rumors abounded that they were trying to create a private army to wrest control back. Certainly there were thoughts that there were spies that, that were loyal to Somerset that were out there trying to create insurrection. This led to more and more armed retainers entering London as the nobles sought to protect themselves. At the height of this, Richard Neville, Earl of Warwick, one of the largest private armies in England, arrived on the side of the Yorkists and effectively put to bed any idea that the Queen and her court would be able to fight back against Richard and his designs. And so finally, on March 27, 1454, Richard, Duke of York, was named by that council the protector of the realm. Finally, the Duke had the power and control he craved. Because of this, he would rule England for the next year. In the end, all the Queen could do was have her son named and recognized as the heir. He was named Prince of Wales and Earl of Chester in that same month. Prince Edward was five months old, and he had no more influence in the affairs of England than his father had had to this point. So... One question, of course, that kind of flows in this situation and, and continues to be something of a fascination for Welsh historians is the position of the Welsh population during this time period. Specifically, we're talking about an era which is 40 plus years, maybe 45 years after the end of the Glyndwr Revolt, and still within at least brief living memory certainly if not in a direct living memory, then within the parents of those people. So there would be knowledge of it, and certainly there would be knowledge of the ideals of Welsh nationalism and loyalty to Welsh ideals. So the question has always remained, why did so many Welshmen seemingly join this fight, a conflict between largely English landholders and English nobility? one that had very little to do with Wales if you examine it from the base standpoint. However, and of course, why would somebody sign on to be a part of it just in general? In some cases, it would be because of the linkages to those said lords. And at the end of the medieval era, feudal expectations remained. Much of your duty as a tenant, because of course, if you owned any land, you were a 
tenant farmer. You were not free to own that land yourself. Even today, there's vestiges of this in Britain, wherein the queen still owns certain amounts of land, and thus you can be a tenant of the queen effectively. Now, you're a tenant for 99 years, but nonetheless, you, the land does not necessarily get inherited down to your children. It's not common, but it does happen. So with that expectation in place, a lord expected their subjects, their their tenant farmers, to participate in these kind of battles, to show up as part of the military, whether it's to hold a pike or a sword. And this always included military service. That was an outgrowth of the honor culture that existed before the feudal era and the idea behind having if you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with factors delicious ready-to-eat meals every fresh never frozen meal is chef crafted dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes choose from a weekly menu of 35 options including popular options like calorie smart kato protein plus or vegan and veggies also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals, so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, Try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code WelshHistoryPod50 at factormeals.com slash WelshHistoryPod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read. Different armies built up and called upon for different occasions. However... Many served without those bonds. Many poor Welshmen and some minor nobles and merchant class people got involved with no obvious linkage to either the Yorkists nor the Lancastrians. Noted historian Glanmore Williams suggested that there was some more patriotic reasons for this involvement. He said, Wales was a country with a long military tradition where soldiers were readily recruited. Its population was inured with the prospect of warfare and rebellion, indoctrinated with the notion of fighting for Welsh or allegedly Welsh leaders, and very easily whipped up into anti-English sentiment. Any leader who could plausibly be represented as continuing the age-old national struggle 
would not have had far to seek for a following amongst his compatriots. For Professor Williams, he saw that many rich, powerful men viewed Wales as, and its temperament as easy fodder for rebellion and to take various sides in the conflict, he used their family names, history, and experience in the wars in France to build followings, to gain places amongst the highest levels of society, and then used an appeal to a national cause to gain more support. This feels very much like how Owen Glendor drummed up support for his cause in the war with England in the beginning of the century. So it seems like a plausible suggestion. But I would also suggest there are probably other aspects to this. One, Wales was generally pretty poor in this period, as happened in the Hundred Years' War. Men would take risks being on a losing side of a battle or in the hopes of gaining financially from the fighting. Some may have looked at it as an adventure worth trying, or some may even have had loyalty to one side or the other, and that had little to do with being Welsh. While I would suggest that the professor is likely right for possibly a majority of the people who fought in these wars, I also think there is a number of reasons outside of just national pride or war experience that would drive young men into wars. As happened in World War I, men joined because all their friends did, or because it sounded like an adventure of the lifetime. Of course, those feelings of joining something likely changed dramatically when the bloody horror-filled battlefields took their toll, but in the first phase of a war, there may be some who see a pure way that obviously defy the expectations or the reality of warfare. The reason Wales would become a feature of both the War of the Roses and the English Civil War 200 years later was because groups after defeat could revive and protect themselves by fleeing into the mountains and hills. Unlike England, Wales was still a rugged place that was hard to patrol and difficult to fight wars in. Combined with that, access to the coast was relatively easy, so if someone had to abscond out of the country, it was easy enough for them to get back into the country by simply landing at one of the many coastlines. There was very little that the defending army could do if they didn't have enough notice to stop it. And if that, of course, led to its own problems and its own level of issues that would certainly come up later, a feature which led to so much trouble for the English crown since the arrival of William the Conqueror, it took the English 200 years to defeat a largely divided and generally fractious population in a landscape that was difficult to traverse, the weather was generally unfavorable, and the population was generally hostile. At no time was Wales a united territory during that process, yet it continued to hold out because, in part, the landscape had protected the people. As the Normans and their successors took more and more land, they put the perfect tool in place to defend that land and to make it harder for outsiders to take this already difficult terrain. The ring of castles, first built by the marcher lords in the south and east, then extended by Edward I to ring the country, made that place very difficult to to fight a war on the offense. Taking these castles, which were positioned so strongly in various places around Wales, defended by multiple protection points with 
moats, edgings of cliffs with multiple tiered defense in an age when cannons were just entering into it made it very difficult indeed. And then combine that with the fact that if anybody escapes, they can just head into the mountains or the hills and continue to fight as Glyndor and others did on numerous occasions. It makes it very difficult for anybody to win those battles. And so a defender is in a much better position than the offensive side unless they have severe numbers or a way to break down castle walls that works efficiently and effectively, which we're only just entering into warfare at this point. So a lot of this problem, a lot of the conflicts were still being based around massive sieges that took forever. And we'll see one that specifically happens in Wales later in the War of the Roses, that shows just how difficult it was to take some of these Welsh castles. And, of course, that's part of the reason why Jasper and Edmund Tudor were sent to run this Welsh south, to control key points of entry into Wales from the south in a more inviting area, at least for massive armies to invade, as we saw with the Duke of York, who brought armies in, via that route, or Richard II, who did similarly, or in the case, as we'll see later, Henry VII himself would do. Wales becomes a takeoff point from the south to the north for a lot of the rebellions that would come, and a lot of eager followers were willing to join these uprisings in part because, as Professor Williams said, there was some semblance or idea of it being a nationalistic cause. Certainly not in the way we would understand it, certainly not in the way you would look at nationalism in this day and age. Obviously that pre, especially pre-Napoleon version of nationalism didn't exist, not in the way we understand it. But common culture, common language certainly did, and certainly an understanding that you weren't English. And when the English made it so hard to be Welsh, certainly there would be a form of nationalism that would come out of that, and certainly the Welsh had that. And so, as we said, this is a perfect place to flee to, to protect yourself, and the Tudors being in control in this area would, they hope, counteract the controls that the Yorkists had in the east and in the marches around the area, and a way for at least some of the king's soldiers and supporters to maintain their ability to reach out and be aggressively a part of the war that will likely, well, as we know, does come. And we're just around the corner from the beginning of all of this. But with that, I'd like to thank you all for listening today. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can always reach me at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at Welsh History Pod, or on Facebook, you can also reach us at uh, facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. And uh, if you're interested in helping with our Patreon, you can always do that at patreon.com slash Welsh History. Thank you, everybody. Have yourselves a great day. I hope it's a good one and a healthy one for you. Thanks, everyone. Take care. Bye. This has been a Distractions Media production. For more information, you can check out everything we do at distractionsmedia.com.
The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siecle, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts.